I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I am so honored to have this guest with me today um, as a long, long, long time fan. John Darniel's first novel, Wolf in White Van, was a New York Times bestseller, National Book Award nominee, and a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize for First Fiction. He's the writer, composer, guitarist, and vocalist for the band The Mountain Goats. He lives in Durham, North Carolina with his wife and sons. His third novel is called Devil House. John, thanks so much for being here. Um, I'm trying to quit as many apps as possible so that you won't be doing the glitch lag thing. (laughs) (laughs) I found that I'm going to have a hard time talking about this book for people who haven't read it, because I feel like you have to really take the whole this a bit. (laughs) So tell me how you like to talk about this book for people who didn't have the entire experience. Um, Yeah, I, uh, I mean, the thing is, I'm the guy who, when I hand you a book, I usually say, well, just read this book. <laughs> I, don't, yes. I don't usually do the shelf talking about it. Uh, I mean, this is a book about a, a, a true crime writer who moves into a house uh, uh, to follow his method of writing uh, and uh, and write about uh, about what happened in there. Like that, that, yeah. That's as far as I go. And it's a bigger book than that. It's a, it's a, it, it's got a lot of other stories that fold into it. It sure does. I, I can't help singing Daniel Johnston. I was living in a devil. You know, somebody pointed that out to me this morning, and I hadn't even thought about it until today. That's so funny. Uh, yeah. So, so John, tell me a little bit about your experience with true crime, and were you a fan? What is what is your education about true crime been like? Uh, so I, I, I can't call myself a fan. I, I'm an ex goth, you know, and, and mm-hmm. young goths do a lot of true crime, especially did when, when there was, and you can see like early Nine Inch Nails stuff. There was a kind of a, uh, cultural subcultural currency in being the one who had more knowledge. You know, it's like people who knew deeper stuff were sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, 
were adepts within the culture. If you, if you really, you know, if you had volumes of books or usually older books, you know, if you, if you had, if you knew more about say Peter Curtin, right. Who was the, the vampire of Dusseldorf. Right. Um, uh, and, and this information was hard to come by. Right. right. Um, but all that is not, you know, writing about Peter Curtin is true crime, but true crime kind of is said to have its birth with Truman Capote, right? Um, yes. Uh, I don't know that that's really true uh, because there were a lot of books about murders before then, you know, and uh, and and so, and Truman Capote is, is, you know, that's the point at which we assign it, but that's a very modern thing to do is go, oh, well, it was born in the 20th century, actually. No one talked about murders. People. So, yeah, whereas in fact, there were a lot of true stories of murders told in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, in the Bible, you know, uh, but uh, but but I always sort of like I engaged at the level that goths do where you want to know about this stuff. You, you, you need to know. And this is pre-internet. So like even knowing about John Wayne Gacy at all was knowing something. Right. But then for me, um, I, you know, I would encounter a, a crisis of conscience like like gauges where it's like you learn a little too much and it's it's ugly to learn, you know, uh, uh, in in almost all the cases, it's not, it stops when you're 18 or 19, it's, it's, it's hilarious what Peter Curtin did. And then you get a little older and you go, Oh no, wow. It's real people. Real, real people. people. And, 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 that, and that poor guy, you know, the other thing is like, you shouldn't feel sympathy for, for people who've done terrible harm at the same time, you know, nobody monsters don't make themselves, you know? And so, uh, uh, you know, and he was, he was a messed up guy. And so, um, so yeah. And I felt, sort of feel like also culturally, I, I won't even say we've grown up, but there's been a sort of a sea change in, in the way we think about some of those things, some, not all, because as we know, true crime is having a big moment right now. And, uh, and I think people are still very much, you know, people may, uh, may pose and say, well, you know, I, I want to know to be informed, but actually when you're reading about a lot of blood, it's because you like the blood. You know, it's like, and I don't, I don't stand above this when I'm writing bloody scenes. I'm, I'm enjoying that. as a Sure. I feel like right now, um, this wave of true crime, there are a lot of writers who have a feeling, like, feel like they're more self-aware. Like, but like, everybody, this is the thing. Everybody always feels like they're more exactly. self-aware and that's just narcissism, right? As and, a, and, and, that's and it is an ongoing narcissism. Everybody in the eighties thought they were arrived at the end of history and everybody right now feels like they've arrived at a great position of moral and ethical superiority. And I'm hope that we have grown. I hope that we actually are doing better than generations before us, but, uh, but I mean, everybody really thinks that they, they, they're, they're sort of super clued in and ask people who were around for the satanic panic, how, how clued in they were, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I engage has this running, the job of a true crime writer is blah, 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 blah. Or yeah, well, what knows. I have he's, to do. I he's right. You know, he, what he does is different, but I think he does have a, a pretty good uh, view of what true crime writers are supposed to do, you know, about, about, about the, about the sort of the, the, uh, the uh, requirements of the genre. After a long day, I just want to curl up on the couch and get lost in a gripping story with characters I can love and hate. Is that too much to ask? Nope. Thanks to Sundance Now, I will always have something to watch that's binge-worthy and that I can be obsessed with. Sundance Now is an ad-free streaming service created by AMC Networks for people who obsess over riveting storytelling and fresh perspectives. Sundance Now has original prestige dramas, international thrillers, and bone-chilling true crime shows. Every show is a sleek production with sexy lead characters. They've got shows like the hit British series, A Discovery of Witches. It's the perfect mix of period drama, romance, and edge-of-your-seat thriller. 
Seasons one and two are streaming now, and season three, the final season, is streaming January 8th. You can stream Sundance Now on all your favorite devices as low as $4.99 a month. Just download the app or watch online and discover exclusive shows from around the world instantly. I found my next TV obsession on Sundance Now, and you will too. Try Sundance Now for free for 30 days by going to sundancenow.com and use promo code MARISREVIEW. That's sundancenow.com code MARISREVIEW for 30 days of free streaming. sundancenow.com code Maris review. Tell me a little bit about storytelling in general and how, especially things that revolve around rumors and especially things pre-internet, it was it's kind of like a game of telephone, how we create the stories that we want to believe. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I, I use that metaphor uh, in the um at some point, I think. I, uh, so I had a shtick about this in college, right? Um, <laughs> that, uh, that, and I think I was right, uh, that, that what storytelling of any sort is, and this includes how we describe our daily reality, is an attempt to impose order on chaos, right? Uh, that, that there isn't a story. Right? Now, I don't know that I entirely agree with myself about that anymore, but I think, it's, but I think I'm probably right whether I agree with it or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that, that when you tell the story of your life, you want it to have a narrative heft and, and, and you try and put that and you see people doing this uh, in so many spheres. And, uh, and I mean, I think it's a fool's errand, I think, uh, but at the same time, it's something we need to do. There's a very deep human need for that, to be telling a good story, to have an, an arc, you know, to have uh, uh, and, 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 and some very classical arcs, you know, you want, you want the, uh, uh, darkest for dawn moment. You want it to be ending in a better place than it started. You want it to have meaning. All those things are super vital. I think Jung talks about this stuff, you know, and I and I think they're vital and valid, you know, and uh, uh, and I think like sort of the very human battle dating back to the earliest, you know, extant stories, you know, uh, Pindar and, and Homer and stuff like that are, are are an attempt to say, well, who this was the story of this person's life. This was the and. and and those stories are all true, you know, but there's all, we also know there's many ways to tell them. Um, right. And, uh, uh, and any given story you live through, you, you learn over time, like well, that story seemed this way when I was going through it. And I seemed like the hero to myself then. And now I look like the villain to myself in yeah. know, knowing what I know now. Uh, I think all of us have dozens such stories. And uh, so I think that in the end, they are an attempt to impose order, even though linear time does exist, right? Like your story does start when you're born, right? That's that's the beginning. And so many novels, especially from the 19th century and early 20th century, always start right there. They, they feel like they have to account for those early days, right? And I, I actually feel some of that pressure that that uh, that that you sort of want. You know, I, I want the ground to be established. I don't want the character to just land without having sort of accounted for his origins. Yeah, um, a classic uh, struggle for novelists and writers of all kinds like yeah well and that's, what is and that's the beginning stories assert ideas about origins and ideas about growth and stuff which are all ideologically fairly fraught questions you know they're not asked and answered and and narrative sort of uh demands that you that you posit a number of things that you do just by reading right? you don't have to consent you you just your, your reading is the consent, right? Uh, which that figures actually into true crime stuff. Like, what do you agree to go through if you're going to read stories like these? So what do you agree to to sort of uh, 
uh, subject other people to by hearing the story, right? And we certainly, as readers, also, or, or listeners, want to hear a compelling story, obviously. Yes. Um, but there's so many people, you know, Blake Butler, uh, a lot of people working with, uh, with, with those demands that a reader has. Like, what if, you know, what if I don't satisfy your story? What if I, or in his book, uh, the, the one, was it like 100 million? I can't even remember what the number exactly was. What if I oversatisfy your desire for the story? Mm-hmm. What if I glut your desire for the story? You know, there's a, there's a, lot, a lot of play you could do with that in the post. And, and you do play. You do play a lot, um, particularly in section three of the book, which is a, Gage's trying to recreate what was going on in, the devil house yes yeah 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 that's his 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 uh his uh his method right is, is to inhabit the space right and and so you go into detail you give yes. us everything you get granular yeah you get granular tell me about i was thinking about the satanic panic and yes. how it's so much easier to, it's like an Occam's razor situation, right? Like, oh, I can't explain this in any other way. So they must have been trying to sacrifice something to the devil. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, Satan was everywhere in those years. You know, and you could, you could really, I mean, there's a book called, we believe the children. It's it's a Mm -hmm. sociological book. So sociology can be hard to read. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty dry. Uh, but it tells those stories of how that it, I mean, it's simple confirmation bias. It's really quite, you know, quite easy. You go looking for something, you find it. Right. And, uh, uh, and that's what, you know, part four is all about. Um, but, uh, but, but in those cases, like, you know, I, I was working in the field at the time uh, and, and we would have parents show up who, who would, you know, who would say, you know, they, they think all thing, kinds of things my kid is saying are true, you know, but that it's not, true and we would look at them like yes it is yes it is we know about you because we believe your child but what's what's really funky about that is do we then want to say after a moral panic like that rises and falls right do we want to become skeptical about believing people who say that they have been harmed physically harmed you know no we don't want to become those people but at the same time one of the absolute lessons of that is like yes you 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 should be more be more believing than maybe people were in the past. But if a child tells you that something happened that's not physically possible to have happened, then maybe say that also children do have big imaginations and be aware of your own role in it. Like that's what happened is the kids in those McMartin interviews were discovering that they they got a big payoff if they told a good story, you know? Yeah, and they absolutely. were and they were trying to please the people asking them questions, you know, and uh, uh, which is very natural for children to want to do. You know, and, and certainly and, and, for any parent or for anybody at all. Um, well, I could go out there right now and get these children to control. Yeah, them, let's right? talk because like, they like me. So if, <laughs> if I thought, if I thought, if they thought telling dad I killed somebody will make dad happy, they'll tell me, right? I wouldn't even have to be at all mean about it. I'd say, hey guys, I heard you killed somebody. Say, <laughs> and I think this is awesome. Tell me all about it. I know, you know, one of them would be like, yeah, I got the story for you right here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, uh, and I, and I also don't think there is really a, a an age past which that's not true. You know, when you ask me to describe what I'm doing, I'm likely to put a good face on something. I'm likely to try and please you with whatever story I, I'm telling. Right? I'm of unlikely to, to tell a story that, you know, I'm like on Zoom, I'm going to be watching your face to see if you like what you hear. <laughs> <And> I'll be <laughs> correcting myself on the fly as I go, right? And so, uh, 
and all, all all that goes goes into the those questions and but but the thing is that's interesting to me as a person who has, always has something of a moral position when i'm writing and it's not moralism but I, I think that's sort of who i am is to be looking for what are the moral questions in play um you know i'm looking at who who gets hurt along the way who who you know what are the costs of of something and i, I you know I think about this with every story I want to tell is like, you know, and I think some of that does tie into the fact that, you know, when I was a younger songwriter, uh, I, you know, most young men when they're writing uh, songs, I can't say most, but a bunch of us, right. Uh, romanticize a sort of a hard narrator, a guy who, you know, is kind of uh, callous or whatever, you know, and then you write a song and people tell you about how, how they relate to it and you go, Oh, well, no, you weren't, <laughs> you weren't meant you're to. not supposed to like that guy right you're supposed to find the story entertaining and and maybe you like that guy for three minutes but then afterwards you're supposed to assume you don't want to be that guy right and then you have somebody come up to you and tell you how strongly they relate to every song on the Tallahassee album oh no if that's your marriage you're in a bad marriage you know <laughs> it's a marriage you should go to therapy about that marriage I mean definitely Alcoholics Anonymous you should go there you know and they, and they but they you have the experience several times and it does raise questions about you know the responsibility of stories that you tell, you know, and, uh, but hope, but yeah. it also, you know, you don't want it to, to have you land at some moralistic place where you then start writing Trollope novels. I mean, obviously <laughs> sure. I have nothing against Trollope either, but, but I'm not writing, you know, uh, Victorian morality tales. And I do think books are, and songs are more interesting when they're open-ended. Right. Since you brought it up, yes. I watched some TikTok videos. <laughs> How were they? <laughs> mind-boggling yeah i didn't i haven't watched that many of them i sort of don't feel it's my place to do so <laughs> they are taking your story and 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 running with it in different well directions. that's what's great i mean that's yeah. what that's what storytelling is and that's the nature of you know i mean it's it's interesting um post copyright the way people talk about um stories and, and stuff is, is very weird you know that that when in fact one of the reasons that I like medieval literature so much is that medieval writers, uh, the first thing and the last thing and the middle thing that they always want to be telling you, I didn't make this up. I'm not just making up a story for you. I got this from Dante. I got mm -hmm. this from an Italian writer whose name I don't remember. This story has been around forever and I'm just passing it along. Chaucer does it the entire time, right? Um, all the old writers did this and why did they do this well one it's a formality of what they were doing it's like it's it's a but but also it was kind of considered gauche to make up your own stuff back in the day it was considered how could your story be any good you got to be telling a story that stood the test of time you know and those stories are the good stories i tend to agree with that you know i i i think i, I think the cult of originality that arises in the wake of industrial capitalism uh you know has uh you know it, it has a reason that it wants you to think that the original thing is the good thing is the distillation whereas like actually uh if the original one's the good one then how come your first idea often isn't your best idea right we think of it is in creativity your first thought best thought that's even a thing in improvisation you know but actually do we not get better at the things we do as we grow usually right i mean, I can think of about a million things that the first time i did it i was not the best at it and then cooking think about cooking your first efforts in cooking are poor almost invariably and over time in the kitchen you become a better cook i've been cooking for 30 years now i'm pretty good right but i wouldn't want to eat the stuff i was cooking 30 years ago and uh and this is true with so many things but in creativity we have these weird ideas about originality uh i forget how i got it. that's one of my uh, yeah i mean well, I pretty let's, twitter is is very much like that where i feel like oh, I was tiktok feel... is what we we're talking about yes 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 
Yeah, where they're taking the stories and running with them. And that's like sort of, a, it's a great and beautiful thing. And people ask me, so what do you think if somebody does this with your story? It's great. <laughs> it's fantastic. You know, there are, but then also people get obsessed with what a person meant by something. And that's where I check out when they say, is the character in this song X or Y? Tell me who this is. Tell me what kind of person they are. Tell me their gender, you know? And I'm like, I have avoided gendered pronouns in my writing almost my entire career, right? Huh. Uh, writing books actually cements them in a way that you're free in songs. If you're singing the first and second person, I don't have to say anything. The song yeah. could be about any number of gender expressions you could name. And I've always cherished that in songwriting, that I don't have to nail anything down like that. I don't have to be writing about anybody in particular. And the song can belong to whoever. Then the song is gets to be free, right? Um, in a way that, that books generally can't. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and then, and you know, anything on film or in TV really yeah. can't. No, it, yeah, it, it absolutely gets shrunk, uh, you know, and, it, and, and in a song, in a poem, you have, you have this, this limitless freedom of, of, of person, of first and second person, uh, or third plural, right, uh, that, uh, that, that allows you to sort of uh, not duck that question, but expand it, you know but allow it really the freedom of play, the space of play, right? Uh, but then people have this need where they will ask you, like, what is this person? You know, tell me about this person. And I want to say, you tell me about this person. <laughs> you know, what are you doing with it is what's more interesting to me. This is this is a, I, I promised myself I wouldn't bring this up, but um, <laughs> a memory I have of a mountain goat show in about 2012. Oh, I remember that show, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one, the one that you did. Um, there was a couple in front of me really bumping and grinding. Yes. I don't remember what song it was, but. You know, I think people in the audience hate that. And I think it's the greatest thing. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to check on that because, yeah, their, their interpretation of your songs is much different from from what I was taking from it. And that that's lovely. <laughs> Well, I mean, the thing is, like, I'm a writer. I think all writers have a bit of the voyeur in them, right? And so I, and, uh, but there's something for me, like, quite amazing. I see a whole story if you look out there, and then just some couple just sucking face to the song. Right? You go, man, I mean, probably the story is much simpler. It's like they've been drinking and they're yeah. really into each other, right? And they, they didn't really come to the show to watch the show. They came to the show to be together in the presence of music, which is a transporting thing. And music, you know, you experience it in your body and you're in your body with somebody who, whose body you're into and they're yours. And that's what's going on. Right. But but when I'm seeing it, you know, it's like there's a million other possible stories that are going on. Maybe, you know, uh, maybe they used to date and they they used to like the mountain goats together and, and were coming to town. And they decide to go to the show together and then they're standing next to each other in a hot room. You know, I like that story. Right. I oh, like, that's good. I, I, I like and I like any any story in which in which passion it overtakes. You know, it's like uh, it, if, if I were able to extend that grace to people holding up their cell phones, like, oh, you feel so passionately about holding up your cell phone and pointing it at me that it's more important to you than the music. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, I, but, but yeah, I mean, there's this, you know, it, to, to me, it's quite, and, and, you know, and you remember being that person, maybe you remember being in, in, in such a couple where, you know, just, or even if you weren't the one expressing that way, maybe you're just holding hands, but feeling like a connection, giving a little hand squeeze at a key moment and feeling like, you know, feeling the hope of, 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 of where are we going afterwards? What's going on afterwards? Maybe making out our car until 4am, you know, some these, these precious moments of youth, right? I mean, these are things that, you know, I'm unlikely to do at 54, right? <laughs> but, but I sure remember driving into CNET cave at 16 and yeah. being deeply in love, right? And, and, and being completely invested in the show, but at the same time thinking, you know, if, if my girlfriend wants to go, I'm out of here, <laughs> so, yeah, of you know, and, uh, 
and and so that's i mean yeah when i see people who who are who are you know things like that are, I, I find them inspiring even though i can see the people next to them like you know wishing that the couple would like you know go, 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 go in a room or something <laughs> so. speaking of all of these different points of view that you can express in songs um in Devil House, there are different narrators of different sections. Tell me about writing in different voices, in different styles, in different fonts. I mean, you didn't write in a font, but you know what I mean. You know, I did, actually. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I wrote in a different font, but I, I didn't write that in, in normal characters. I wrote in a big font that was only filling like 50 characters to the page. Um, and then Sean and I had to go back and forth and back and forth in the font because I kind of wanted it to be semi-illegible. And your editor is like, I got it you know, I'll publish whatever you want to publish, but I, I don't, I'm not looking for something to not be legible. And I'm like, but what if it is? What if, what if you can't see it? <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested in that kind of stuff. There's a page in Tristram Shandy. that's a completely black page mm -hmm. and, and Stern goes on for 10 pages about how important that page is. <laughs> I love that. So, uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, so, so the book there aren't many people commenting on this so far, but the book is a mirror, right? It's a mirror with a with a with a, with an obelisk in the middle of it, right? Um, but part one mirrors part seven, part two mirrors part six, excuse me, and part three mirrors part five. In terms of the stories being told, and in terms of the person, right? So we're the, in the first person for parts one and seven, in the second person for parts two and six, and in the third for part three and five. Uh, that in part was because I wanted the book to be a house, and a house has structure. Right. Um, a house mm. has to have structure, um, and and the structure is almost always going to have a symmetry of some kind. Right. There's plenty of postmodern architecture that doesn't <laughs> that favors some sort of other thing, but you know we're Catholics. We do not need to be thinking about postmodern architecture. We want to think about churches, <laughs> think about, <laughs> sure. about houses that are symmetrical, right? And so, uh, or almost symmetrical because symmetry is almost impossible to actually achieve as we know, like even we have bilateral symmetry, but no, we don't. I have a heart on one side, right? And, uh, and so, uh, uh, so yeah, so, so I, I was thinking about how to make a book have a symmetry, uh, uh, an architectural symmetry. And that was the idea I landed on was to have these, have them reflecting in that way to be pointed at each other like mirrors. And, uh, and I discovered, cause I had, I mean, I used to write when I would write and when I write songs too, I often, when I settle on a person, I like the ones that are in the second person. I like there's, there's a, there's a power in that. Uh, and I think I'm good at it, right? That's uh, uh, no children is in the second and first person, but it, there's a lot of I statements, but it's pointed very much at the person he's addressing, right? And uh, uh, and when I got into the second section of this book, that was really where I started to rise to my theme. You know, it was like the, the, when you're continually writing like that, uh, it becomes very easy to inhabit the character that you're writing from, even though they talk less about themselves. They keep addressing the person, but. And, and I mean, I don't even know what to say about that, how interesting that is to me, that if I'm addressing you, I get to know more about what I'm saying by not focusing on myself, by getting out of myself. And I, I think, you know. Kind of like a cusk type of a situation. Yeah. And like, I mean, there's a spiritual component to that, right? That, that like, that I think runs counter to the conventions of the age we're in, like, the, you know, the, the, the dominant sort of form of expression is the selfie or the, you know, or the, the monologue, you know, uh, and I'm monologuing here, right? But, uh, but I think if I'm addressing, if I, if I as a formal exercise, uh, describe what I'm looking at, instead of what's going on inside me, I'm going to get 
I'm going to wind up talking about what's inside anyway, because you can't express without talking about yourself, you know? So I think why then dwell on yourself? What, what, why not dwell outwardly? And, and that's, and those are, I think sections two and six are the ones where I get to go the most exciting places. Uh, I don't know if that spoke to your question. It, it did. And I, yeah, I feel very lucky as someone who reads galleys because I didn't know going into reading devil's house that there was a symmetry and so yeah. it, it it dawned on me a little, little by little after the fact what you were doing and that is something that I wish we could save a little more for for other readers and yet it's impossible. I mean you can cut that out if you want you can uh, oh no 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 I want to talk about it part, so. I want to talk about it because it's such a important part of the book. And I think it does, it would guide readers towards like what they should be looking out for. Yeah. yeah. And yet it was just such a pleasure to have it slowly dawn on me. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is I, I hope if I've done my job, you'll notice, right? That there's, there's a symmetry to it. And, and, uh, and, and you'll ask yourself what, what the function of that symmetry is, you know, which is, it's to construct a house in which by traveling through it, you, you learn more about the rooms that you went through, right? So, uh, uh, and, you know, and some of them look different in the wake of the ones you wind up in, right? Uh, so, uh, and the thing is, what I like about that is it does enable you to talk structurally about the book without having to having to tell any of the plot elements. Right? Yeah. Like that, that tells you a lot right there, but you don't even have to know any of what took place to understand that, like, you know, you will see things in the first room of the house whose, <laughs> uh, whose import will not become clear to you until you're in the seventh room of the house. And that makes sense, right? That makes sense in any given house that like, you know, any a picture you see hanging on the wall in the entryway, well, maybe it's echoed by another picture down the hall, or maybe it's it, maybe it, uh, maybe some other picture completely uh, recontextualizes it, right? But you will get a broader context as you go, right? Um, and that's the that's the idea. Yeah, one of the things that I struggle with as someone who likes to read about crime, right? So you are a true crime hound. You 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 read you read this stuff. I read the stuff by the more self aware, right? I made yeah, quote yeah. unquote. Yes, you want you want an out. <laughs> you don't want to read the lurid. You you don't, you don't want to feel like you're being uncool, right? I, the thing is, this is not an accusation. I I get it, right? Like I uh, I only read crime fiction as a rule now. I don't feel bad about reading crime fiction, but I read, you know, I read stuff where where terrible stuff happens. Although I will say, Parenthood does change your relationship to bloodshed, at least in the short term, right? When mm. you have a baby in the house. I remember I've told this story before. I was playing a Rainbow Six game at that time on the PlayStation. Right? These are violent games in which some uh, squad of, I don't know, cops or whatever is hunting down terrorists or something. Ideologically, it's pretty foul, but uh, but but it's a well-designed game. And I was playing it and I discovered that I didn't, I took considerably less pleasure in putting bullets in people's heads, you know, um, both in the game and out in the real world. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, when I had this bundle of new utterly vulnerable life in the house you know i just say now he couldn't see a baby he doesn't carry in the next room you know but 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 uh but i you know like i i still haven't played through another game like that since you know like it's sort of i went through a change about it uh but uh but at the same time you know like i was saying 
I get to have my cake and eat it too because I get to write this book, right? And there's this gory stuff and I get to really indulge in glory and pick words and make it as ugly as I possibly can when you know, people die and stuff. And so, <laughs> you, were, you had a question you were asking. What was the question I was asking? Yeah, you said as a true crime reader and then I probably interrupted. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, the stories we like to hear, or I yes. like to hear, let me speak for myself revolve around criminal masterminds in a yes. way that fiction um, has taught us to expect. And yet how rarely do we actually see someone yeah. like Hannibal Lecter style plotting out a whole game? Yeah, no, there are those, if those, the thing is like, there's, I haven't watched any of this stuff. Cause like I said, I don't really engage anymore, but there was, there's some show, I think it's called Mindhunter. Is that right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right uh, and I think they had a, an Edmund Emil Kemper arc, right? Uh, does that ring any bells? Yes, yes. So in my days of reading about true crime, Kemper was one of the guys you read about. He had like a 200 IQ, very intelligent dude, right? Uh, and also completely psychotic, right? Um, uh, although not, I mean, psychotic is a weird word, um, but uh, but like uh, vi violently psychotic, but capable of holding on and talking at great length about you know his own pathology and so forth. Um, and he sort of scratches that itch for some people. For the most part, I mean, if you have, if you act on the desire to kill, given what we know about your chances of getting away with it, already you've told me a lot about your intelligence, right? That your, your intelligence has already been sublimated to some base or urge that you can't control, right? And well, now, what function intelligence actually occupies in getting us to tamp down our urges, that's not a settled question as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, but at the same time, it's like, you know, there's uh there, okay, what movie is it uh is it dog day afternoon or somebody says you know taking hostages is the dumbest crime no kidnapping is the dumbest crime the dumbest because there is no way out of kidnapping right, right. You kidnap you absolutely can't get out of it it's just the stupidest crime to engage in right? so so you can't have a mastermind kidnapper because you can't there's there's no good way out right it never works um but the, the idea of the mastermind criminal, I mean, I think this wish fulfillment, right? Is like because yeah. there's probably some stuff you would like to do in your life that this <laughs> thing that stands between you and doing it is that you know you're going to get caught, right? I mean, in all of our lives, I'm certain that's true. You know, it's like we don't, hopefully, whatever it is, is actually fairly benign. <laughs> it's like, hopefully, fairly you don't benign, want to get it with <laughs> But there's plenty of stuff, plenty of stuff that I'm sure you wouldn't be terribly proud for people to know you'd like to do if only you could get away with it. <laughs> and, 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 and I do think it's also a really attractive story in terms of yeah. so much violence is random. Yeah. Or... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's what, this is what we were talking about at the beginning is like yeah. random violence. There is a, post-punk band in the 80s called Sister Ray who had an album called Random Violence. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> album title. But then they didn't really spike the landing with the chorus of the song. It's random violence and it's very intense. <laughs> it's, <laughs> great. I mean, they're right. But, it's, <laughs> so, Amazing. But, but that's the thing is like the threat of the random uh, is is what's really scary, right? It also is the, is the it has very few narrative possibilities. If you yes. tell a story in which random things happen, people will tell they'll say, you didn't really tell me a story. <laughs> you, just told me, you just sketched a bunch of random occurrences, right? And uh, uh, and uh, so, yeah, but the mastermind criminal is is a, uh, is, I'm going to use the word panacea, right? It's, 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 
it, security blanket, right? If if the criminal yes. has a plan, yes. right? Yes. Well, the plan probably excludes me to begin with, or whatever it is, it has meaning, you know. So even if you murder all these people, it has meaning, you know. Whereas in most parts, it's actually the meaning is going to be a lot, a lot less comforting. It's going to mean there was a pathology that was unfixable that dates back to early childhood, and that he couldn't help himself and probably wanted to, didn't actually take that much pleasure in these acts or if it was pleasure, it's a pleasure that was followed by, you know, absolutely convulsive shame and, and ugly stories that don't satisfy and that we can't even paint any answers to because we can't control the variables, right? Then those are what, those are why we have our mastermind criminals is like, they tell a much more comforting story. Absolutely. And then we don't have to look at structural problems. Yeah. Um, well, and the thing is, even if we do, <laughs> you're not, you, you're uh, the Samuel Beckett line. I'm always quoting. You're on Earth. There's no cure for that. You know, <laughs> we we can fix all the structural problems, but this will not fix human pathology. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it still hopefully it would it would lighten the burden on enough people to reduce the overall amount of suffering. But but suffering is not a problem we're going to cure. You know, right, right, right. Tell me a little bit more about Arthurian legend. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I, I read a book called Mort d'Artur that I bought at, um, this lets me put a pin in that you wanted to talk about books, and I, I love nothing better than talking about books, so let's not finish this without talking about books. Um, but uh, but one of the things that I get to do as a guy who lives on tours, I get to go to bookstores, right? Book tour even makes it worse, right? Because then I get to go to bookstores and be in them like every day, and I come home with like books that I now, since I began writing novels, I now have more books than I will ever finish, ever. Mm -hmm. I will go mm -hmm. to my grave not having finished a third of Big the pleasure. books I own, and I'm going to keep buying books. I yeah. will never stop. No one Good. can, well, Good. God can stop me, but no one else can stop me. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but, but I bought a book in Edinburgh. Have you been to Edinburgh, Scotland? No. This is a used book lover's paradise. Uh, it is like the, the used bookstores in Edinburgh, and it's like raining there half the time. So you duck in out of the yeah. horrible rain into the world, the warm world of the books, you know. And there's some fellow who's run the bookstore for 20 or 30 years in a big old white beard reading a book himself behind the counter. And you're surrounded by secondhand books that are different from the ones you're going to see in America just because most of them were printed abroad, right? Uh, right. And I mean, there'll still be some from all around the world as in any used bookstore, you get this variety, but so there's a bunch of old books, um, and I bought uh, Mallory's Mortartura that I was curious about. I always loved Chaucer, but I hadn't actually engaged the Arthurians at all. Well, Mallory's Mortartura is a fascinating and amazing book, um, and it is a very emotional book, uh, which is uh, kind of unusual for its age, but it is sort of attempting to... to codify and get all the Arthurian legends in one volume from beginning to end. And they do the narrative arc of the, of the, the quest that then resolves in the quest for the grail, right? When they grow up, they stop uh, doing deeds of daring do, and then they, then they seek the grail. Um, and I read that book 10, it was a book that I owned for at least five or six years. And this is one of my favorite things with books, right? A book sits on the shelf in my house for a long time waiting for its turn some of them mm -hmm. as i say will never get their turn uh, but they'll get a turn with somebody else down the line right they, maybe i'm not maybe i'm just a conduit Absolutely. along the way for this book the book i'm reading right now uh eta hoffman i don't know when i got this book i just found it while i was cleaning the office it's got a 5.99 or maybe 15.99 price tag but it doesn't say the bookstore i'm not sure when and where i bought it maybe on book tour and it's been sitting waiting for its turn and then i happened to okay. read mary shelley earlier this month and then I was like, well, I want to stay in the 19th century. And uh, Hoffman, I think, is actually earlier than that. Yeah, he's born, well, very, very early 19th century. But uh, but that was the one I could find because most of what I have is either earlier or later. So anyway, 
but I bought Marta Artura in um, in Scotland, and then it sat around waiting its turn for a number of years. And it was one of those books that when I started to read it, half of me was like, how could you make this book wait so long when you like it so much? You've been sitting there not experiencing this pleasure. And I was like, well, no, that's because now you get to have it. It's like, it's even sweeter knowing mm. knowing that, you know, it, it, when you wait for something, I don't know how true this is for everybody anymore. <laughs> like for me, if <laughs> I have to wait for it, I like it better, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, uh, so yeah, so I really had this moment with it. And in terms of language, Mallory's language is amazing. He's doing so much. And, uh, uh, and there's a lot of emotionalism in it that I, I really, uh, that I really like that it's, it's sort of a grafting where we're growing as people who think more about our emotions onto a past that actually thought about it less than that, you know, prior to, to, you know, with every succeeding age, the human heart, I think we learn more about it as we grow as a species. And that's reflected in literature that we start to, to be more interested in it than we were previously. Although, which that's mm. not to say that Homer was not also very interested right. in the human heart. And um, before we go, yes. tell me about some books you've been reading. You, you just showed me the- uh... I just did, I'm reading E.T.A. Hoffman, who's one of the earliest writers of weird stories. Uh, I don't know if you've read Hoffman. Uh, I have not. So uh, it's something I've been very interested in. It's, it's a translation. Most of what I read is literature and translation. Um, and uh, I actually had a big thing on Twitter the other day where the, the translator talks about how he's taken a lot of liberties because we don't, we don't want from, from literature what Hoffman assumed his readers wanted. So he's been generous with the trimming. I'm cool with that. Most Americans are not. Americans have this idea that unless they're getting a literal translation, then they're not getting the real thing, right? Mm -hmm. But translation is a performance of a text, right? Sure. And, and making choices about leaving stuff out, that's part of what the translator does. You're never going to actually get a, there's a translation of the Bible, like Young's literal, literal translation, where the guy tries to do a word to word concordance, but that's not going to express to you what it felt like to hear that stuff in those days, right? Uh, there's so many interesting, great questions that go into translation. So I'm reading Hoffman, uh, and I am real curious about how much of, of Hoffman am I reading and how much of uh, uh, R.J. Hollingdale, uh, who's, he's like, his main beat was translating Nietzsche, right? Well, then I already know a little something about you, yes. right, as a translator. And so, and of, you know, I don't think you can shake that if you're <laughs> living your life with Nietzsche. <laughs> it's going to come through in your translations of the weird German stories of the 19th century. So I've been reading that. Um, and I read Shelley's The Last Man, which I bought at the beginning of the pandemic. It's a plague story. It's considered her second best uh, book. And it is very good. Um, it's it's very 19th century, though. It, it assumes you have a lot of, that you, you want to spend a lot of time with these people. And it also, I struggle with the 19th century more than any other century, um, just because like the, uh, the, the sort of uh, uh, societal norms that are assumed to be good 18th century books are way more chaotic than 19th century books. And the 18th century is like utter chaos. <laughs> and the 19th century really is imagining this order around everything that I have, I really struggle to relate to, um, you know, especially in, in, as regards like fainting women and so forth, you know, <laughs> like women don't get to do much in, in, in the 19th century uh, uh, books. Whereas in the 18th century, you might, you might find some weird stuff popping out, you know, from yeah. time. it's just much more chaotic. Um, and, but then the, the book I'm always pushing that I want everyone to read is uh, Kin by Miljanko Jurgovic. Uh, I spent a lot of last year learning about Croatian literature and I've only scratched the surface, but I read David Albahari and I read Dasa Drindic, who I've been reading for several years. Everybody should read Dasa Drindic uh, from New Directions. Um, and I read um, Igor Sticks. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, S-T-I-C-E-S. Uh, 
and I read this book by Yurgovich that Archipelago sent me called Kin, which is like a thousand pages long. And and the way that I got into it was like, I saw it as like, oh my God, you guys have sent me a big brick. Like I have time to read a giant brick of a book. And as soon as I said that, I was like, yeah, but what if you did read the book? What if, <laughs> what if you put everything else aside and said, I'm going to read the brick. And if I don't finish it this year, then I don't finish it this year. And well, I did. I, I It's so good. Uh, J-E-R-G-O-V-I-C with an accent, with a acute over the C is, is his name, Jorgovic. And he is an absolute pleasure of a writer. Uh, and and Croatian writers are incredibly generous insofar as they seem to know that they're going to be translated and that you probably don't know much about Croatia and about the history of the region mm. uh, uh, and, uh, and or even where it is. Like you may or may not know that it's literally across the body of water from Italy. Um, and, uh, and so there's a strong Italian presence in Croatia and a strong Croatian presence in Italian in, in Italy. And, uh, and, and, and he's that way. He's extraordinarily generous in, 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 bringing you welcoming you into the story of this region that has had a complicated and and very sorrowful uh many points uh story i mean i i guess every place can be said to have that but uh but it's the story of his family it's called kin he's just tracing his family back and telling the entire long story of his family living in this place that that becomes different places like a lot of eastern european places it's its right. borders become very different and uh and it's a really great book. It's especially great if you do read Drindich and you and you know a lot about you know about what what was unique about Croatia during the Second World War and stuff. But uh, it, it's an absolute absolute. Like I can't imagine anyone finishing this book and not going. I sure am glad I read Kin. Anything other than saying that, you know, it's it's the greatest. So the the best uh, recommendation, John. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. I'm I'm sorry about uh, I, I, what I want to say. I'm sorry is like. If I seemed cranky when I got here, I probably was because <laughs> I was I, like having trouble with the Zoom like and everything. Of course. Um, yeah, I'm sorry is, about but, that. No, but here's the thing. I'm a middle-aged man, right? And one of the things that happens is like you start to lose the ability to be uncranky when the crank sets in. It's like, it, you know what I mean? It's like, I think when you're younger, you're like, you know, you're you're able to, to turn on a dime. And like, and we notice this about older people when we're younger. It's like, oh, you know, he hasn't, he needs something to eat. It's, <laughs> Well, this was this was everything I had hoped it would be, and awesome. um, and uh, Devil so. House is just such a, a wonder of a book. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. A pleasure to be here. Uh, uh, don't be a stranger. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I, I hope to see you out there. As uh, as uh, Roger Miller from uh, Mission of Burma taught me to say when I was saying goodbye to him in an elevator, and I just met him at this festival, and I was like, I'm gonna hope I run into you guys. Well, uh, I, mean, I don't know if it. it, it he said, Yeah, I'll see you out there. <laughs> I really like that. That, that's so lovely. It's good, right? <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. I will see you again. Yes, indeed. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.